is Our American Stories, and our own Alex Cortez regularly brings us great stories about freedom, one of our favorite subjects here on Our American Stories, and what can happen when it's unleashed in a free economy. And let's take a listen to Alex's latest report. On May 4th, 2017, I went to St. Louis, Missouri to attend a competition. No, not that type of competition. A competition of high school students. The hell with it! That may sound kind of, well... Boring! But it wasn't. They were competing for real money. Money. Uh. For their real businesses. My name is Quincy Milosevic. I go to Corner High School, and I'm creating an app called Walk It Off. My name is Nate Weenan, and my business is fudged up, and I saw a game of Bush Price. My name is Dave Mama McKinney. It is my business partner. Ron Handler. And we're here to introduce our business partner, the Double Backup Factor. The competition sponsored by the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, Nifty, who brings entrepreneurship classes and summer boot camps to low-income communities reaching over 500,000 such students to date. These students create their very own business idea, write an entire business plan for it, and even get to pitch it. And pitch it to get to the national competition in New York City with its $25,000 grand prize, which the top two winners of today's competition, a regional competition, get to advance to. Two of the evening's competitors and its MC had something in common. And better yet, not just something, someone. The same teacher, the best teacher. Every year, Nifty honors the teacher of the year. And this year, Mr. Jake Lipinski from McClure North High School was honored as the Global Enterprising Educator of the Year. We'll talk with Mr. Lipinski later, but first, his stars on their big night. The rules are that each of our presenters has 8.5 minutes, eight and a half minutes to present their presentation, and then the judges will be given four minutes of discussion, question, and answers. We will time that. And the first up of Mr. Lipinski's competitors was Quinton Milosevic, who's pitching his business Walk It Off, a supplement to the Fitbit exercise watches that count the number of steps you take. And Quinton started off by doing something masterful. He engages the folks in front of him. Uh, can everybody hear me? Yes. Great. Uh, my name is Quinton Milosevic. Uh, I'm a junior. I go to McCormick North High School. And I'm creating an app called Walk It Off. So by a show of hands, do any of the judges own a Fitbit, smartwatch, or accomplish steps for fitness? Fantastic. Anyone in the audience? Awesome. So uh, why do you have a Fitbit? Right. Uh, do you know what your uh, what your goal is to burn, or how many steps you have to take? Ten thousand. Why? Because that's what everyone said. <laughs> <laughs> My point exactly. Now, because it's based off nothing, people aren't losing weight and they're stopping using Fitbit, and I have a solution. Walk it off. So the problem: forty-two point three million Americans own a Fitbit. However, one third of Fitbit users 
stop using Fitbit after six months. Why? Because people are trying to beat step goals not based off any facts. They just sound nice, you know, 10,000, you think that sounds good, no one's losing weight. It's my solution. My app tracks the calorie intake of the user and converts them into steps. So now, the steps you need to take are based off what you ate, not just a random number. It has meaning, especially when you go for that favorite food. Let's say you went to McDonald's for lunch, you got a Big Mac. Uh, you, you go into the app, you launch it, type in Big Mac. Different options will come up, you press that one, and because there's nutritional information in the database, in the app, it'll say 1,000 steps. I do a thousand steps for a Big Mac. Good to know. Good to know. And then came the judges sharing their wisdom about what might be good for Quentin to know. So Uber spends $20 to get every single user. You, I forget the number, but it was way too low. So how do you validate, how have you validated your marketing costs to get people to go to the app store, find your company, download it, and then pay 99 cents? Ah, oh, what great feedback. Without getting the marketing right, even the best of products won't mean anything to anyone. And also how your marketing expense interacts with the corresponding revenue it brings in. A one-time download fee of 99 cents might not be enough to sustain the business long term. Another judge actually recommended that he consider a reoccurring revenue model for this reason. You know, these are tough, yet good questions for Quinnen to wrestle with, and it's much easier for him to dive into them at the start of his enterprise than later on, and he now has that opportunity thanks to the help of these judges. Next up, the second of Mr. Lipinski's competitors, Nate Whedon, in his gourmet fudge business, Fudged Up. And during his pitch, this high schooler did something interesting. He told them about his qualifications. Work experience, uh, I've had three jobs and I've worked since I was 15. And so I've had experience. Uh, two of the businesses I work for were uh, local first generation startups, so I kind of got to see how they run a business. And I think that gives me a lot of experience in starting my own. In addition to that, I find my own lawn care service, so I work with customers to um, buy quality lawn care. If I were an investor, I would want to invest in a guy or gal with experience like that. But sadly, I'm not. Then Nate faced the judges. What is the shelf life? Okay, so um, it's organic, so it's refrigerated because there's no preservatives. Um, normally, we eat it up, so we don't have to worry about that. But it's about like one. It's about two months, maybe. About um, in order to sell in stores, I'm gonna have to get that tested. Um, you take that to the lab and they test the bacteria growth, how long it takes. I research that. Um, that's something that I would invest in before I sell in stores. Nate was one confident cookie there, and it's because he clearly did his research, you could hear it, and could be confident in what he was saying. The judges are going to go to a separate room to deliberate on their two and a half, first, second, and third. And after the break, we'll hear from those judges, and you won't want to miss it.
is Our American Stories, and we're back with our own Alex Cortez report from the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship's Regional Pitch Competition in St. Louis, Missouri. And when we left off, the competing high school students had pitched their businesses, and the judges went into a private room to pick the winners. It took the judges about 15 minutes to deliberate, and it probably felt longer to the competitors. So, judges, I think we're all interested in your impressions. Is there any feedback you'd like to give students uh, before, before the results are announced? I would encourage you, gentlemen, uh, when you face those hurdles and those challenges, look at them as opportunities. You know, you're navigating, you're figuring out uh, the no that you're hearing. Uh, potentially is not right now. You're repositioning yourself to say, you know what, how do I rethink about my product? Now, what's another way for me to reposition this to be successful? But then when you hit that roadblock and you're like, maybe it's, it's okay to pivot. Um, so if you're going to have a, a shortcoming and if you're going to fail, fail fast and fail forward. Because uh, that's the only option. Don't, don't go back. I think it takes a lot of courage to do what you've done tonight. I think it's one thing to have a great idea, but I think it's another to be able to articulate it as well as each of you did. And so thank you for the time you invested and the passion that you showed. All right. We all did fantastic, but there has to be a winner. So I have the envelope. The judges have made the decisions. So in third place, with a winner of $500, is from Cornwall High School, Quentin Boloskovich. Next two finalists are both qualifying for the national competition in New York City. In the second place, receiving a reward of $1,000 from Normandy High School, Raheem Larry and Damon McKinney. And in first place, Nathaniel Whedon from Cornwall High School. And after the awards ceremony, I caught up with Quentin Milosevic, who I briefly met before the competition, where he didn't tell me something significant that he mentioned in his pitch. Hey, how does $500 feel? Hey, it was good. Yeah. Nice. yeah. You did a good job presenting. I liked it. Thanks. Yeah. I wish yeah. you had to go to New York. That's all right. Oh, it's all right. I didn't know you were, uh, you were an Eagle Scout. You were humble and not bringing that up when I interviewed you. <laughs> you know that's one of the greatest uh, qualifications out there. Yeah, it's it was scouting has changed my life. That's uh, that's just all my friends I know are scouts, and uh, I met them, and the skills you learn are amazing. So yeah, yeah. What percentage of it the Boy Scouts are good Eagle again? Oh, like six percent. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. I. Uh, it was awesome getting it, and uh, I try to help my troop get there. People in my troop get Eagle, too. So You know the guy who was the youngest in Missouri State history to get it? Who? Sam Walton. Really? Yeah. Oh, well, learn something. Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> oh, man. Well, thanks, Quentin. Yeah. And then I caught up with the first place winner, Nate Whedon. Hey, how was it feel, winner? That's uh, good. Yeah? I'm super excited. I was so impressed uh, you were able to answer the, the uh, shelf life question that well. Oh, yeah. That you had researched and prepared so well in advance. Yeah. Yeah? 
you try to think through every possible question um, that someone well, can ask you? A lot of the questions they had asked me were from the previous round, so I had known from that one. And I had been at, they had been asked so I thought like I need to think of a better answer for yeah. the next one. So. Excited for New York? Yeah, I'm really excited. Yeah, how about the money? How's it, how are you going to spend awesome. it? That's awesome. That's uh, awesome. I'm probably going to save it and I'm going to try to use it for my business. I'll probably spend a little bit, but I'm going to use it for college and for um, this business. And he might get more money still in New York. I next bumped into the aforementioned MC of the night, Matthew Wilkie, who the prior year made it all the way to the national competition in New York, but came up short. And now he's on his way to college. What do you want to do after college? Oh, uh, I want to teach entrepreneurship. Why? Well, I've come to realize in this world that you can do anything. Right. And I feel like some a lot of kids, especially in lower income areas, not as well funded schools, need to learn that. I mean, Nifty was started on this on the principle that there was a teacher in New York City. Okay, yeah. and he has an idea. He taught entrepreneurship. He told kids that you can, if you have an idea, you can make money. And I think entrepreneurship is a way to take poor, and make rich. All right. And this is America. We're capitalist society. I think that that's the way to do it. Through education, learning, and just putting your nose to the grind and doing something. Do you want to try to be an entrepreneur first and then go into the classroom? Of course I want to do. I, I want my my goal in life is to own my own business yeah. and create. But I realize that that there's always gonna be education. I wanna be certified for education just in case I have a fallback. Yeah. But I, I Yeah, that's everyone's dream I feel like, but it's definitely mine. Just own your own business and be able to be who you want to be and do what you want to do. How much of this do you credit to your teacher, Jake Lipinski? You know, I, I give a lot. Uh, I started, I had no, going to high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And then he invited, said, hey, I was on the wrestling team with him. And he said, join DECA. And DECA's another business camp. And I was like, it's all right. It's pretty cool. And then I took his entrepreneurship class, honestly, just because he taught it. I thought, okay, easy A. He's my coach. I got this. But and then I started realizing and I was like, he would do problems in class. Like, this is a problem. How would you? Well, how would you make a business to solve it? And I eventually just nail things down. I feel like okay, I got this. I know how to do this, and it just made sense. You know, some things come easily to people, and I feel like it comes easily to me, and I I love it. Do you know what that's got to mean to him personally? You know, that you're trying to follow in his footsteps. And that probably means more to him than you know. Yeah, I mean, he's he's been by my side day in day out since my freshman year. He he got me into wrestling, which I'm wrestling in college, going to college for full tuition scholarship for wrestling. He got me into that, and, and I did nifty. He got me into it, and I feel like you know it, it means a lot to me and him. And I he deserves it. He's an awesome guy. You said um, during your presentation that some, sometimes when you lose, you win. You said something along those lines. What did you mean by that? I think uh, you were referencing after the national competition, but what uh, specifically did you have on your mind? On my mind is a better a person you said it early, later in the um, competition presentation over here was um, Kalia mm-hmm. from The Surge. Yep. She says, if you're going to fall, you're going to fall forward, not backwards. And I, I just picture that in my head is that if I'm going to fail, I'm going to learn from that mistake. And that I also had SLU last year from um, John Alsup, who sponsors the SLU Business Entrepreneurship Plan. He said, 
you know, I, I failed many times in my life, and I don't regret a single one of them because I learned something from it, and I'm, I look where I'm at today, and I would never change a thing. And I, that meant a lot. That means no matter what happens, if you keep moving forward, eventually you'll get it right. Eventually it'll work out. And I think that's the beauty of life, just moving forward after you fail. And after the break, we'll hear from the man I've been teasing you about this entire story, Jake Lipinski, Nifty's Global Teacher of the Year. And can't wait to hear from him, Alex. And, you know, you hear this over and over again about failure and risk-taking, and we're not doing a good enough job in this country teaching these things. And by the way, when you get a chance... Listen to two things. We've done quite a number of these stories about Nifty, and one in particular that tugs at our heart is Obino Coley's story, the Haitian immigrant who had two baby mamas, as he told us, but he didn't let it become three. And it made him very real with his students that he'd lived through tough circumstances. And here he was, a voice of these young men and women, actually teaching them about entrepreneurship. And Raheem Larry and Damon McKinney, uh, you'll hear from in this piece too. And their business was the double backer packer. They're heading to New York. We're heading with them. And this is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. We love stories about entrepreneurship. The other thing I wanted to have you see and look and watch for on our website is Denzel Washington's commencement speech. Cause he said over and over again to that graduating class in Louisiana, he told them fall forward, fall forward. And don't have a backup plan. Fall forward. More on Nifty. More on these great stories. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we're back with the final portion of Alex's report from the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship's Regional Pitch Competition in St. Louis, Missouri. In this segment, he speaks with the person all of these students you've been hearing from have in common, their entrepreneurship teacher, Jake Lipinski, Global Teacher of the Year. And by the way, in the background, you'll hear from periodically screaming in the background, Jake's boy. How did you get into teaching in the first place? Um, 
I, my former coach of mine, um, after I graduated from college at Mizzou and I wrestled there, called me up and said, uh, you need to come coach with me. And so uh, I said, I don't know, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, so I went and coached at Lafayette and got me a job as a hall monitor. Didn't did still know at that moment I wanted to be a teacher, but I come from a teaching family. My father was a teacher for 30 years. And a coach, right? And a coach. Um, my sister's a teacher. My brother-in-law is a teacher and a wrestling coach. Um, I was the last one to get into it, even though I was older than my sister. And I realized uh, pretty quickly once I got to the high school and was working there and coaching with kids, I really enjoyed the experience with the high school students. And and I knew right away that it was a place I wanted to be. So I went into grad school to be a teacher, and here I am. How did you get to do an entrepreneurship? you got to know how rare this is in most schools. Um, I think marketing and, and just I was going to be a marketing teacher and Entrepreneurship is um, part of some of the curriculum, and I kind of have always had that mindset. And actually, the guy a student taught under, who was my former coach, um, the guy got me into to education. Right when I finished my student teaching, me and him started a business. What and, was it? Uh, Soda Jerks. We, the St. Louis Mills opened up. We had a store there for five years. And I worked a store for about three years, and like most businesses, uh, there was problems, mainly being at... St. Louis Mills <laughs> be a number one problem. The Mills is a shopping mall that, like many malls across this country, is now largely abandoned. And um, a few years into it, I decided I, I had my teaching degree, and um, I was coaching still, and I, I knew I had to start making a little more of a living than I was making it. You know, I had dreams of being a millionaire, which wasn't going to happen. And <laughs> the right opportunity came along. There was an opening, and I decided to go for it and got the job, and here I am, ten years later at Florida North Teaching. You almost feel like your your failure has helped you as oh, a teacher. Oh, fa- I tell the kids they laugh. You know, kids say they laugh. Like, you failed. You, you failed a business. What are you going to teach actually, us about? I actually had a kiosk once. Once I got back from, I'm one of those guys that when I travel, I'd see things like I want to take that to St. Louis. Yeah. So I opened up a kiosk selling Brazilian jewelry. I went to Brazil, <laughs> and it didn't work out that well. Another issue. So I, I tell the You're kids. Still standing. Yeah, I tell the kids. I. Almost everybody that's you know been a business owner, they've had failures. I learned so much. Most of the stuff I teach my kids is all from the mistakes I made. You know, and my my buddy put it simply. He's like, you know, he wants to start another business one day, and he's a teacher. He's getting ready to retire here soon. And he said, um, you know, people ask me when to start a business. Of course, that that edu- that money that we lost in that business, that was like paying for a degree at, at Mizzou or something. I mean, <laughs> you literally learned so much from that. It was real life experience. What was you the know? soda jerks? Where did you guys sell? So soda jerks was. Um, Kind of like a a wine shop or uh, or a cigar bar for sodas. Okay. It was glass bottled sodas, all glass bottled from around the U.S. A lot of small brands that you can no longer find. We have uh, Fitz's here in St. Louis. Yeah. Well, every you have the Milwaukee one. I'm blanking yes. on the name. Spreckers. Spreckers. We yeah, sold I've Spreckers. Been, I've been to their brewery. Okay, so yeah. exactly every city has their Spreckers yeah. or their Fitz's. So we brought all those to our store. We we got them shipped. We um, distributors and we picked that stuff up we had about one time maybe 300 350 different bottles of soda in our store wow. the majority of it was glass bottles then we started getting international stuff that people were kept coming and asking us for we started getting international bottles we had a soda fountain of inventory yeah we had a we had a fountain bar that was an old soda jerk we went yeah. to maryland and bought a real soda jerk bar that, like they did back in the 20s and 30s it's a great name for it, too. and soda jerks was a great name the kids loved it because they sold shirts a lot of those shirts sold because wow. said jerk on there but for the older people, that a soda jerk was somebody that made a soda. Yeah. And so the idea was there. The location was horrible and a few other things. But um, it was a great learning experience, you know. And, and, and we could mix and match. It was kind of like craft beers nowadays where you go in and make a six-pack of whatever you wanted, 12-pack. That's how ours worked. And 
that's that's that was the idea. How uh, is there a moment from your teaching this class that really stands out to you that you know when you go to bed at night says, man, this all has really been worthwhile. I it literally was happening when I was sitting back there and, and, and when it first started tonight, you know, sit back there when those kids are ready to present. I said it's all worth it to see all these people there and to see. I honestly wouldn't I wouldn't have done this when I was in high school. You know. I was one of those guys that want to get in front of the class or anything, and, and it's amazing to me to see kids getting up there, and, and they have to put a lot of practice in, the nerves, they got to control all that, and, and you know, I, I that's what makes it worth it. These guys actually take my advice, you know, I'm not, I don't claim to be the expert on everything, but I tell them this is a great experience, and they're going to get a lot out of it, and, and these kids step up and, and believe in me, and they come up here and the end result is getting up there. That's awesome. I mean, just to stand up there and do this, win or lose, is, is pretty impressive to me. I can see how much they respect you just in their interactions with you. Why is that the case? I I, I don't know. I I guess coming from a I, in the end, I think you know people know their calling. You, you figure out. I think I do have a knack for this. Coming from a teaching family, my father, and just the way I saw him interact with his former students and stuff. You know, I don't know what it is. I enjoy. Yeah, I can tell just talking I, to you. You're I enjoy, a pretty genuine guy. I enjoy. Not faking I it or putting on an yeah, act. Yeah. Talking I, with me or talking to uh, I made a. You know, I made my mistakes in my life. I enjoyed high school. High school was one of the best times of my life. And I just want kids that had that same experience. You know, high school should be great. It tries me things you want. I, and I tell my kids, here's regrets I have. I don't want them to have as many regrets. Try everything. You know, and I think this is just an unbelievable opportunity. They didn't have things like this when I was in high school. You yeah. know, and they I didn't want I either. And I just I encourage as many of them as I can to. to to step up and do it, and, and I think every kid I've I've never had a kid say I regretted it. You know what I mean? And, and that's the key. You know, now one kid's ever come back and goes, I wish I didn't do all that. Yeah. They they all actually go, I wish I would have done it earlier. Do you have a favorite lesson that you teach? Oh, uh, <laughs> definitely not the financials. Uh, <laughs> that goes for that's probably half the class. Um, and yet you're still doing it. <laughs> I, you know what I do is I, I, I do a quick thing. I, I have some fun where I have the kids. Um, I take a more popular right now is the, what are the flying uh, to drones? Yeah. So right away about the second week of class, I have the kids spend about three days. I tell them a drone. It's out there. You can buy them. What can you do to make money with it? And there's some interesting things kids come up with. Deliver oh. medicine. Deliver, <laughs> deliver uh, hair. I, I, oh I mean, deliver hair? Uh, yes. And, you know, so I tell them, like, there's people buying drones right now to make money out of it. Yeah. It's interesting to see the array of ideas that kids come up with. And that's, that's gets them started to be creative, thinking, you know, how to solve problems, you know, and, and figure out things. So, What's with the handlebar mustache? Are you a, a, hipster, a hipster wrestler? Hipster I mean, doofus? What? Hipster wrestler uh, teacher? It's, it's quite a combo. It's uh, it's called branding. And um, father? I mean, you got a lot of labels. Yes, here. it's branding. Um I've never had a mustache in my life. A year ago, I just let it grow all summer because when I'm a teacher, I'm off in summer. And I said, you know what, I'm going to grow a mustache, and I just did it. I had it for a year. I let it grow out again my whole beard during the rest of the season. Good job. I'll see you tomorrow. And um, I brought it back again. I just say, you know, if you're going to go big, go, you know, if you're going to have it, go big. It was funny that I noticed this year the kids were coming to school. They walk around the school, and they're like, who's this Miss Lipinski? I hear them talking to other teachers or, or other kids. The kids go, it's the guy with the mustache. And there's about 10 other teachers that had mustaches forever. They, they say this, the guy with the mustache. The mustache, not the guy with not the mustache. Yes. 
I must ask, they know it's me. So I tell kids, it's, it's branding. You know, you got to be, if you're going to do it, people got to know exactly what you, you know. So anyways. Reporting from St. Louis, Missouri, I'm Alex Cortez. And thanks for that, Alex. And thanks, Jake, for doing what you do. And that's Nifty's Global Teacher of the Year. And we love doing these stories. The Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, their regional pitch competition in St. Louis, Missouri. We're going to track these stories. Some of these kids and some of these adults are going to New York City. We'll be there as they pitch for the Nifty National Championship. And that's sometime this fall, and we'll bring it to you. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Jake Lipinski's story, his students' stories, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now it's time for a segment that we focus on as often as we can in October, because it's important. It's Infant Loss Month. It was declared in 1988 by President Reagan, and it honors those babies lost in miscarriages, stillborn births, or sudden infant death syndrome, and these are things that happen to so many people that we thought we should share the voices of the people who've grieved and let you hear them and then let you share your voices with us and your stories. And the first story we're going to bring to you comes from Emily Carrington. And she shared her story at thefederalist.com and kindly recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. Having lost three children to miscarriage... One of my biggest fears is that my children will be forgotten. I'm not looking for me or my miscarriages to be remembered. I'm looking for my children to be remembered. In many ways, this is really an impossible request. No one has ever met my children. And other than an indecipherable eight-week ultrasound of our first, I don't even have pictures to share. But their souls grace this earth, if only for a short time. And as their mother, I yearn for others to carry my children in their hearts. I do know other people miss our children. My husband and I are not the only ones with empty arms. Their grandparents, aunts, and uncles are missing baby snuggles. Their cousins are missing playmates. And their church is missing baptisms. But as their mother, I carry the weight of their memory every day. And ultimately, I fear they will be forgotten. I am blessed beyond measure when my children are remembered. Following my third miscarriage, 
we were blessed by an outpouring of love and support from friends and family. One day, I answered the door to find a good friend holding five flowers. As she handed them to me, she simply said, A flower for each member of your family. As heartbroken as I was following that loss, my heart was full. My children had been remembered. Every parent who has lost a child carries the memory of his or her child. And many fear their children will be forgotten. But unfortunately, not every lost parent has a way to remember his or her child. Due to the silence surrounding pregnancy and infant loss, too many parents are burdened and alone, with no space to channel their own grief, let alone encourage others to remember. As my husband and I shared our losses publicly, we've also been able to give life to our children. We refer to them by their nicknames when talking to friends. We reminisce about my pregnancies, and we honor special days. Often this is accompanied by tears, but it is also often accompanied by great joy as we have had the pleasure of celebrating and remembering our children. But our story is not the norm. Our culture has a deep need for a space for parents to grieve their children. Countless articles and blog posts have been written over the last few years crying out for the freedom to talk about our children. The subject has been covered over and over again because the silence has been imprisoning families for too long. Inspired by the upcoming film project on the subject, Don't Talk About the Baby, I second them and say, it's time to talk about the baby. Although slowly, this need is being addressed. And perhaps this outcry is evidence of more than 30 years of work. In 1988, President Reagan recognized the tragedy of pregnancy and infant loss as he declared October National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. Reagan is often attributed with saying, When a child loses his parent, they are called an orphan. When a spouse loses her or his partner, they are called a widow or a widower. When parents lose their child, there isn't a word to describe them. That's so true, and thanks for recording that, Emily. And I wanted to share a little extra part of the piece that Emily wrote for the Federalist called Please Help Me Remember the Children I Have Lost to Miscarriage. She added this, Our lack of awareness about miscarriage is pervasive. Dr. Zev Williams conducted a study where 55% of respondents believe miscarriage occurs in less than 5% of pregnancies while the number is actually between 15 and 20%. Adding to the misunderstanding, most people do not know what causes a miscarriage. As many as 76% believed one could be caused by a stressful event. And then, because of this misconception, blame themselves for it. So thank you for writing what you wrote, Emily, and thank you for recording it. And now... On to a second story. This one comes from the Today Show, of all places, and it's, in about, and it's about a very unique ministry of photographers. Can you hold your brother's hand like this? The birth of a baby. Happy smiles, one, two, three, go. Jessica Person photographs that joy hundreds of times a year. 
Oh, that's perfect. Every picture important, but some more meaningful than others. And then one, two, three, wow. All right. We know we're having a girl, and we've named her Olivia. Eileen and Paul Lundberg. Awesome. And their blended family wanted tangible memories. Oh, I like that so much better. Even before Olivia was born. Captured moments of happiness. Can you get the shot, a shot where I'm kissing your tummy? Absolutely. More important because genetic tests revealed baby Olivia likely would not survive her birth. We have a, a beautiful little girl, and we're trying to make the best of it that we can. She will not grow up, we know that. And so we're uh, enjoying every minute and every day that we have uh, Olivia. Can I look down at Olivia for me? In years past, when parents were told their baby might die, doctors encouraged moms and dads not to bond with the baby. We know from looking back, when we haven't allowed families to recognize their children, that they have a harder time grieving them, because people expect them to move on. And this allows people to say, no, I had a baby, this is my baby, and he's beautiful. Jessica knows that because five years ago, she went through the same thing. Without those pictures, memories fade. Her son was Eli. I was never more proud of anything I'd done in my life than the day I gave birth to Eli. And so taking a picture was natural? Absolutely. Even though I think most of us would think it's the saddest day? Absolutely. Our minds blur things. And so those pictures you have of Eli, mm -hmm. they mean? They mean he was here. They're proof. They're proof of what he looked like. They're proof that he looked like his daddy when he was born. They are a testament to his life and what his life meant to us. That he existed? That he existed. Four pounds, 3.2 ounces. Jessica and a team of photographers across the country are part of a network of volunteers who, in their own way, help parents like the Lundbergs celebrate lives all too short. Well, Olivia. I love you, sweetheart. You say hi to my Eli in heaven for me, okay? And tell him his mommy loves him. Thank you, Jessica. Oh. Eileen and Paul, oh look at her. Like any parents, now have pictures of their child. Olivia was here only briefly. Oh my God. But her life was no less important. That was our life with Olivia, was that day. And um, to have those captured on film by somebody that really knew what they were doing. I mean, to have that is just priceless. This is at once one of the saddest stories I've ever covered and also the most inspirational, really. The organization is called Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep. We've put up a link on our website to the more than 3,200 photographers. They've taken thousands of pictures just this year. And again, that's nowilaymedowntosleep.org. And what a ministry that is, folks. And what a way to use your talents and gifts from God uh, with a camera to ease people's suffering during their greatest time of grief, but also their time of joy. And Eileen and Paul, thank you for opening yourselves up to a show as big as the Today Show, where a lot of people might just be saying, oh, how weird, how kooky, come on. I mean, that's how people used to think about these things. 
And hopefully that perception can get changed with a ministry like this. And baby Olivia, you were loved. You were loved. And we all get a, a ticket here on earth. We don't know how long it'll be. But to be loved, my goodness, what more can you ask for? Eileen and Paul loved her. They loved God. God loved them back. And God loves us all. This is Lee Habib. And this is Our American Stories. is Our American Stories, and from time to time, we like to take the pulse of Main Street America, and particularly small businesses in Main Street America, because small businesses are the lifeline and the pulse of America. 55% of all jobs, 55% of all jobs are small business jobs. Two-thirds of all new net jobs are small business jobs. And by the way, just some Interesting facts before we dig into this segment. Since 1990, big businesses have contracted or eliminated 4 million jobs in this country, while small business owners have added 8 million new jobs. And that's why we do this. And by the way, we do it because in the end, we're all pulling for small business owners, and we know them. And that's the local dentist, a good friend of mine, Walker. He has 20-plus employees. That's a small business, that dental office. And the barber shop and the The local bicycle shop, this is what makes America hum, and some of them grow into some pretty big small businesses, and then some of them grow into really big, big businesses. And as always, these hourly reports are brought to us by our friends at Job Creators Network, and defendmainstreet.org is where you can go to to find out more about what they do. And so our young interns, Shadrach, Martin, and Colby from Hillsdale College, well, they just got here, and we sent them right on the road. And they're traveling around the country talking to business owners of all stripes. We're learning what got them into their businesses, what their businesses do for their local communities, and ultimately how taxes and regulatory policies affect those businesses and thereby those communities. Here's a small business owner we talked to in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, a town of approximately 40,000 people, an emerging college town. It's the home of Southeast Missouri State University. My name's Eric Good, and I own Cape Bicycle and Fitness. We're a bicycle and fitness store, and we've been here since 1978. So why bikes? Uh, I like bikes. I, I rode bikes a lot when I was young, and I started working at a bike shop when I was 15 years old, and I haven't ridden as much since I've worked at a bike shop. I'm 60 now, but we just enjoy it. Uh, it's something we like to do. I, I had a guy today that came from pretty far distance, and he's in a wheelchair. He can't walk, he can't stand, and we got him on a three-wheel recumbent bike, and he's riding. Wow. So that was just, it was just an awesome deal for me today. And you can hear the enthusiasm in this guy's, in this guy's voice. Our team asked Eric, the owner of this shop, about some of the challenges he's facing 
at Cape Bicycle and Fitness. We pretty much see our expenses going up every year, and um, generally our profit margins are decreasing. So it'd be, Why do you it'd think be a, that is? It's just the way, the way of the world. You know, expenses are going to continue to go up, whether it's your insurance or your property taxes continue to climb. And then many of the, uh, if not many, if not most of the manufacturers seem to be cutting margins, and, you know, their profitability just seems to be getting tighter and tighter every year. So yeah. we keep going after it, and fortunately for us, we've got our building paid for, we've got inventory paid for, no debt, and so that makes it a lot easier. Uh, but yeah, I just uh, we're going to just keep keep doing it because we enjoy it. Our traveling interns then asked this small business owner from Cape Girardeau, Missouri, what a tax cut would mean for his bicycle shop. Well, it certainly can help. I mean, yeah. there, there's times where, you know, if, if we're going to have a little less of a tax burden, I mean, mm-hmm. we can go out and spend a little more money. I mean, mm-hmm. we, have, we have situations where, whether it's our local city, mm-hmm. our university is spending money out of the area or out of the state. And frankly, if, you know, I've got less money coming in, we're probably going to spend less money on advertising or for my employees who, who need jobs. So, yeah, I think it's important to do everything we can, try to help the money stay within our local economy, and, and it gets paid on to whether it's the employee, mm-hmm. the guy at the coffee shop, or the guy going to the movie theater, or mm-hmm. the car dealer. And next up, our interns talk to another small business owner in Cape Girardeau, this time in the marketing field. My name is Dana Thomas. I'm the owner of Bold Marketing, and we are a full-service marketing advertising agency in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Growing up, I knew ex- that I definitely wanted to own my own business. There was not a doubt. Um, I just didn't know what. And so I went through the process just thought of all kinds of ideas and knew at some point it would just hit me that it was the right time and the right avenue. And that's kind of what happened. Somehow, by good grace and hard work and a great team, we have grown to where we service clients in 20 states. And now we have a second location in Nashville um, where we're growing that team base there as well. Dana describes her market and then shares a story about the extraordinary measures she took to retain just a single employee. For one, it's the fastest growing market in the country and it's very populated with medical and financial, which is two of the industries that we specialize in. We also had an account manager here that I was training every day for two years to be an account executive. Um, Her husband got transferred to that market and I said, okay, let's not lose you. Let's just open up uh, that satellite office there. And so that's how we chose that location was because she was moving to that market. And that's Nashville, of course. Our team then asked Dana what the biggest expenses were in this marketing firm comprised of 20 employees. Payroll is our biggest expense here just because of the industry that we're in. It's a service industry. And um, I expect a lot of employees and our clients expect even more. And so we have uh, our employees are, are paid well. We also have a lot of media that we place, and so whether it's TV, radio, digital, social media, a big portion of our our revenues go out to media placement. Otherwise, it's your typical government taxes and everything else. We have owned this building, we're building another building, and we have our office in Franklin. When asked what she would do with a tax break, Dana Thomas of Bold Marketing had this to say. Uh, I would do two things. One, I would increase my staff. So I would I would open up probably two more position, full-time positions with benefits. Um, so it would help that growth opportunity. Um, the other piece is I would invest more in technology. Um, we are developing software right now, and I would probably develop, um, invest in even more software. And by the way, when she said she'd hire two new people, she meant it. And when she said she would invest in technology, she's hiring more people. 
because business-to-business sales mean more jobs. And we love talking about the impact of tax policy only as it relates to you and only in storytelling form because that's all we do here on Our American Stories. It's stories about your pocketbook, about your family, about your dinner table, your health insurance, your lives. Your lives here on Our American Stories. Our young interns traveling around the country talking to small business owners everywhere here on Our American Stories, Voices of Main Street Project. Our American Stories, and we return to our special Voices of Main Street Hour, where we send our crew around the country, either in person or on the phone, to talk to small businesses about what's going on in their lives. And you know these small business owners, is their friends, their neighbors, and the lifeblood of the American economy. And that's the thing, I don't think most Americans know that 55% of all jobs come from small business, and two-thirds of all new jobs new net jobs. Those are big numbers, and they're a big part of our economy, and we don't hear from them enough. And that's why we do this Voices of Main Street piece. And we have our intrepid interns, and it's it's just good fun to send 20-somethings out and find out about real-life consequences of public policy. Some of these young people might be studying government in school. They might be studying something like it, civics. But this is a civics class in action, folks. And so we return to a place called Handmade Heaven. And by the way, it's a store that makes handmade goods from quilts to cupcakes. They have it all. And the owner is Maggie Bodai. My name is Maggie Bodai. Um, The business is, it's called Handmade Heaven, of course. Everything in here is handmade stuff from local area crafters, bakers, woodworkers, artists, Um, everything like that. Uh, We do a consignment basis. I do not charge my people like a monthly or weekly fee. Uh, I just make 20% off whatever they sell through here. That helps them and it also helps me. I have no overhead in this business as far as everything you see in here. You know, they bring their stuff in and I just get 20% when it sells. What got you guys into the idea of opening a business? Well, actually, I had three jobs before I opened this place. Um, I think my husband could see that it was kind of wearing on me. So he was like, why don't you just open your own shop? And I was like, there's no way. Like, how are we going to do that? So um, anyway, we just went to the bank. We talked to the owners of this building. Um, Actually, we did not get a, like, business loan. 
we didn't do it the conventional way at all. We got $1,300 back for income taxes this year and we refinanced my son's truck and that's what started this place. We are gonna buy the building, but for the first 12 months, we're set up on a lease purchase. So that way, if the business doesn't go well, at the end of that 12 months, we can just, we have the option to walk away or go ahead and purchase the building. So like if somebody could, you know, get somebody to work with them like we did, I mean, pretty much anybody could do this. Anybody. Anybody can do it. And by the way, my mom had a consignment shop, and she gave great supplemental income to our family. And by the way, the women who came in to consign made money too. It was great supplemental income for their families. And I think my mom had at the core about 25 core you know, consigners who made a living for my mom. My mom made a living for them, and it gave my mom meaning and just made her so happy. And when she got a little too old and it was just too hard, the worst thing we ever had to do as a family was close that consignment shop, which, thank goodness, we didn't have to do at the end. An angel came in, one of her customers, and took it over. And here's Maggie explaining why she started this kind of business. And by the way, it's located in a town called Madrid, Missouri. The handmade stuff, I really like it. Like, I've always loved handmade stuff. Um, it's always personal. It's a one-of-a-kind, unique, personal gift. Uh, my daughter and I, we make sugar scrubs and bath bombs and things like that. And we knew how hard it was to be able to sell that stuff. Basically, all you have is like Facebook, word of mouth, or pay to set up at a craft fair or something like that. So we wanted to help other people too. That's why I told my husband, you know, if we start this business, I want to do something that helps not only us, but others around in the area. And this is a great thing because this gives people, so many talented people, a chance to have a storefront to sell their stuff in. I really enjoy helping others. I always have, like I've always been big into charity and stuff. That's why, like I said, when we started this, I really wanted to do something that not only helped me, you know, not have to work three jobs, but you know, help other people around too. And I, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to charge the, the booth fees or anything like a, a regular flea market or something like that would because with that, you know, if they didn't sell anything, then they're just out money and I don't want people to have to go through that. Were you able to draw people into getting their items here in the store? I thought it might be hard actually, but once I, you know, put the word out of what I was doing, I literally have somebody come in either every day or every other day saying, do you have somebody who makes this? I do this, I make that, you know, it's actually easy. They come to me. I don't have to, I don't really have to do anything. <laughs> I mean, this has been great so far. We've been well, very well received by the community. Everybody who comes in loves the place. They love that it's unique and it's different than most shops. Um, I, I don't know where another shop is like this. I think this week will be two months maybe. We opened, we did a soft opening on March 25th and we were open that week and then April 1st we did our grand opening and you know we've been open ever since and like I said we, we have quite a bit of business actually. I really didn't know how it was going to go. You know the first few weeks, well about the first six weeks I was open seven days a week just to see where I needed to be and um, Honestly, nobody comes in before lunch break. So many people work, you know, they have jobs, but lunch break, we have people come in and we're pretty much busy until eight o'clock at night when we close. And that's the sound of small business right there and a brand new baby business, which we just love here on this show. She makes it very clear that she never saw herself as a business owner. I mean, did you see yourself being a business owner? Growing never, up no, never. <laughs> I, I came from a very poor family, actually. Um, we lived off welfare, and my dad got, he was an elderly man when I was born. 
And so he got Social Security, and that's basically what my family lived off of. I mean, we would walk and pick up cans to make extra money. My parents would mow yards, paint houses. I never, ever thought that I would be doing this. And, we, you know, me and my husband over the years, we've been married for going on 18 years this year. You know, we'd talked about businesses before, but this was never one of them. I, this just literally all fell together in about two weeks' time. We found a building that we liked, and I liked this one. This building was actually built in 1900, and we had to do about four grand worth of work on it. But, you know, I worked my extra jobs, because like I said, I had three jobs before I did this, and I just worked those for a few extra weeks just to, you know, keep getting money in to go ahead and finish out what we needed to do. Seriously, anybody can do this, anybody. So now owning a business, and this is one of the big things going through the government right now, if, if they lower taxes on you know, businesses, small, especially small businesses, yeah. what would you use that money for? Oh, I'd use it to make my business better. My money that I've been getting through here, like that's for the shop money, you know, of course that's mine because I'm the sole proprietor, but I've been using a lot of it to just buy more things to, I just want to keep improving. I, I don't really want to, like I said, I don't want to get rich. I just, I want to keep improving and I, I just want everybody to enjoy the place. And what does Maggie have to say to those who want to start a business? Just do it. Like, just figure out a way. My dad always told me, like, there, where there's a will, there's a way. And that is so true. Like, like I said, we started this with income tax money and refinanced a vehicle. I mean, anybody can do that. Anybody. We, we're not rich people by no means, <laughs> you know. I just, I, I say just go for it if, you know, there's a way. There's always a way. When my husband, you know, brought this up, I was like, there's, no. <laughs> you know, we, we don't have the money to do this. I don't even know if our credit's good enough to, like, get a business loan. And, you know, the people who own this building, they were willing to do the lease purchase with us for the first 12 months, you know, and that helped so much. So we're, we're really thankful, you know, for that, too. But like, if, you know, like I said, if they can find somebody who will help them out, the lease purchase is a great, a great deal. If they can find somebody to help them out with a building, I mean, you got a vehicle and it's paid for or, you know, something like that. Or it, if it's close to income tax, there's your start money right there. You can do anything, seriously. I didn't think that before we started this, but I really believe that now. And that's Maggie Bodai, owner of Handmade Heaven, and she's in Madrid, Missouri, and you can just hear the, the voice of a small business owner eager to grow and eager to, as she said, get better. And in the end, get bigger. And by the way, just a couple of more asides. In 1996, 7.81% of our population owned a small business. And that's down today to 6%. And that's not good. And that's why I think and we think uh, that there are not as many good jobs around today, and a lot of that has to do with tax policy. And again, that's why we're doing this segment, Voices of Main Street, our Hillsdale interns. Great job, Shadrach, Martin, and Colby from Hillsdale College. And uh, they're in Logan, West Virginia today, and we'll have more stories from them. And when we come back from the studio, Voices of Main Street, well, you're going to hear from someone in South Florida. A very interesting voice from a part of the country that we're going to get to know a lot better over the coming weeks and months. This is Our American Stories, the Voices of Main Street Project.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue our hour, Voices of Main Street, where we cover the lives of small business owners around this country, and we do this from time to time, and it's sponsored, as always, by our friends at the Job Creators Network. Go to defendmainstreet.org to see all that they do. We love sending our team out to talk to small business owners, get their stories, what they're going through, and what they want to tell you, the country, about their lives. And one of the stories our irrepressible interns from Hillsdale College came up with was one from their own hometown. That is the hometown of their college, Hillsdale, Michigan. The business, the Market House grocery store, the owner, a fourth-generation owner, Brett Boyd. And so our interns talked with Brett and first asked him, what we ask every guest, what was his very first job as a kid? Our supermarket used to be closed on Sunday, and uh, I would go in with my dad on Sunday morning um, and face out the shelves and mop up the aisles and kind of clean up the store. And, and at the end of about a four- or five-hour shift, I got an ice cream cone, and uh, I thought that was the greatest thing ever uh, until I got a little bit older and kind of realized I was probably on the wrong side of uh, the ledger there, but uh, it was always a pleasure starting uh, uh, with my dad in the family business. And when I'd go in there, no one was in there, so I uh, kind of had the store to myself. But uh, it's funny because I've tried that with my kids now, and, and uh, that doesn't go over very well. Brett became the next generation owner after his dad, and the competition, well, it's stiffer than ever. They have a Kroger right next door to them, a Walmart four miles down the road, and of course, there's the internet. It's been tough going for this family business, but Brett has gone all in to try to survive, taking out a bank loan. And the loan, he used the proceeds to try and bring in restaurants, gyms, post offices, and pharmacies into his store, make it a one-stop shop for his patrons. Well, our interns asked Brett, does this big, outstanding bank loan make it hard to sleep at night? Yeah, you know, it's it's tough, um, but... uh, we were kind of in a put up or shut up um, situation in Hillsdale due to our competition, um, due to the markets. Uh, we had to make an investment, and um, we we really believe in our people. We believe in our community. We believe in our employees, and uh, especially when you're a Hillsdale kid, you live up in your hometown, and you know you you take pride in that investment and what you can do in the community. The toughest part right now is. Uh, is about the third of the month <laughs> when uh, when that payment comes due. It, it's uh, it's extremely difficult right now as we continue to grow our business and try to um, you know forge towards more profitability. Uh, but it's something that I love to do, especially when you got a family behind you, seventy six years of tradition. Um, you know, quitting was not an option. We uh, we want to grow our business, continue to grow it into a fifth generation. Most people walking into Brett's stores probably think, this guy's got two stores and he's got all these restaurants, gyms, and pharmacies in them. He's got to be pretty wealthy, right? And yet to hear him him talk about being nervous about whether he'll be able to pay his bank loan each month, it's pretty remarkable and and would be surprising to most folks. Here's Brett on this point. Yeah, I I think it's a big misconception. uh, obviously, over the years, I think my family is the, the supermarket industry in Hillsdale, Michigan, is uh, treated very, very well. Um, 
but you know competition is really uh tightened up at what was already a tight margin business and uh you know we we even at Hillsdale we haven't got ourselves to profitability yet um but we're not we're not giving up and uh it is it's stressful times and um but again I, I wouldn't have made this commitment without the relationships we have with our community with our customers uh with Hillsdale College has been just a tremendous supporter of our business over the years. And, um, you know, I have a lot of faith, um, a lot of faith that we're going to be fine and we're going to drive on and we're going to be profitable and, and we're going to make an even bigger mark on the community. And you can hear the pain in his voice. I mean, you can just hear it. And yet the resilience, too. Brett mentioned his low profit margin, and so we asked him what it was. Yeah, the supermarket business has always been known as one of the lowest or tightest margin industries out there. Um, it's pennies on the dollar. Um, at the end of the day, if you could make one and a half, two percent, um, you're doing a good, you're doing a good job. Um, uh, it's and those margins are just. My goal is to to run a business that makes you know somewhere between two and a half to three percent profitability. And my ultimate goal is invest that money back into the 401k and retirement plans of my associates and invest that back into our community. Um, because, uh, without our community and our associates, we're, you know, we won't reach year number 77 of our family business. A goal of making 2.5 to 3 cents out of every dollar a customer spends. That sounds just crazy. But it's also a free enterprise at work, folks, and what's driven all of our family's food costs much lower. Walmart, for example, saves the average family $2,500 a year by squeezing costs out of the system. And Brett's trying to do the same thing to compete, compete for your business and compete for customers. Brett continued. It's probably kind of alarming for most folks out there that deal with double-digit gross profits but when you consider um the utility costs the insurance costs all those factors uh then of course your labor and i'm so blessed to have such a phenomenal staff at both of our stores and you know we my ultimate goal is to be able to pay them even more but i try to take care of them they, they've taken care of my family for many many years and uh take care of our customers and uh i i take a lot of pride in trying to offer a fair wage to our to our associates and ultimately I want to pay him pay him even more and be in a position where we can contribute to the community at an even higher pace. We asked Brett, like we ask a lot of small business owners, if the proposed tax cut were to go down from the current thirty nine percent to fifteen percent, would it help his business and his employees? Yes. Um we uh we actually are trying to uh we met with all our associates earlier this year, and our ultimate goal is to grow our company to $25 million in sales this year. And the $25 million target was not really our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal was to get to that $25 million, but along the way be able to contribute more to our associates and contribute more uh, to our community. So, you know, any relief on in taxes, especially with our tight margins, would be so beneficial in uh um, you know, we, we just want to reinvest that back into what we are, and that's our hometown of Hudson and Hillsdale. And you can hear it in this small business owner's voice. And by the way, our interns from Hillsdale 
and our team here will continue to talk to small business owners across this country because they're still hurting. They're still hurting, and you can hear it. Small business owners, by the way, in a poll revealed on Job Creators Network's website, while 75% of them agreed that high taxes and tax complexity threaten their businesses. And again, imagine if you're working on margins of 3 and 4 and 5% and taxes are in the mid-30s as opposed to 15 to 20, that's the difference between survival or not. 60% believe, by the way, that the current tax plan will have a positive effect on their business and their hiring. And this is what we like to do. Find out what small business owners are thinking, what they're talking about. Voices of Main Street, brought to us by our friends at Job Creators Network. Go to defendmainstreet.org to learn more about what Job Creators Network does to defend small business owners around this great country. This is Our American Stories, small business owners' stories. We do them all the time. Our American Stories, and just great job by our interns from Hillsdale. And you just heard the voice of small business, and my goodness. Well, there's nothing more to say. I just want to keep you posted on what's happening in this country. And this is a part of our Voices of Main Street project. And we'll be bringing you many more stories of what's happening on Main Street in this country and small businesses. Next up, well, a man's name is Carlos Gazetua, and he's the owner of Sergio, who's a small chain of Cuban restaurants in South Florida. And our own Alex Cortez brings us his story. My mom was really kind of my cornerstone. My mom and father got divorced when I was young, so I, I got to live in a, in a single parent lifestyle. And you get to see whenever you don't have a family unit together, there's definitely more challenges for the child. I think you see the reality of life a little bit faster in terms of the hard work that's necessary, that you appreciate what each member of your family contributes to you. Whenever you have two two families, separate incomes, that definitely creates more, um, I would say less income for you as a child to experience some of the things that maybe other families have or have not. His mom had a restaurant, and their family had purchased it just so that Carlos's grandmother could get out of working at a factory and work there instead. Even though they didn't know a single thing about restaurants, this special grandmother fled Cuba and brought generations of her family's recipes with her. My grandmother saw when Fidel Castro took over that the opportunities were 
diminishing rapidly in Cuba. Many Cubans thought was going to be an opportunity for democracy and freedom um, when Bautista was forced out of power really turned into a nightmare for many Cubans in the island. They didn't see what they thought was going to happen. It wasn't freedom. In fact, it was turning more into a dictatorship. So um, at that time, my grandmother and, and many of the people in Cuba realized that they had to leave. Unfortunately, by that time, it was too late. And you basically, if you left that island, you could not take anything. Jewelry, cash, nothing. And the United States was always the dream for opportunity. It was the land of opportunity. And when they had the opportunity to come over, that's what they did. They came over to start from scratch because they knew that they were going to give the second generation, not just them, because that's, that's an important point, because many immigrants, when they come over here, they, they realize that it's not them that's going to benefit. It's going to be the second and the third generation that will benefit. And that's what they thought when they came over. And that third generation was Carlos, who at the age of eight will wake up at 5 a.m. every single morning to help open the restaurant at 6 a.m. before he went to school. He would open up and turn on the, the, the coffee machine, and if I had to count the cash actually in the morning to help service the, the first customers who always knew what kind of coffee they wanted. And at that time, it was also, believe it or not, was cigars. He would buy cigars in the morning as it was a very uh, human uh, population and people didn't know much about cigarettes and cigars. They would buy that in the morning for their day and they would get their breakfast or eggs or ham. And that's kind of what we were, we were involved with was opening up. And uh, it was definitely an experience because as a kid, you're so young that the last thing you want to do is go to uh, work before your school. But it was definitely a, a lesson that stayed with me to remember how hard life could be. Unfortunately, not not many people get to see the experience of working in a small business and seeing how hard it is before going to school. My favorite description of being an entrepreneur is that you do get to make your own hours, but you also get to work all of the hours. I then spoke with Carlos about the topic of the day. What would the proposed tax cut to 15% mean for Sergio's restaurants and its employees. But I first asked him, what's the tax rate he's paying now? Oh, us? I think close to 50%. Close to 50%, easily. 50? Isn't it 39 and a half for the top individual rate? So how are you getting hit more? Because of cash flow. Most, most people think, okay, small business. Okay, you're paying 39%. But every small business owner will tell you, particularly any business that has a lot of... Um, business or volume coming in for inventory and purposes, they can't pull out all the cash. So what you got to do is pay pre-estimated taxes every quarter. That kills many small businesses to, to invest because you're paying taxes and it's quarterly. Okay. But then also you got to keep a certain amount of money in your business just in case something happens. So when you really think about it, after paying um, federal income tax, all the taxes I told you, affordable care act tax, professional taxes, tangible taxes, payroll tax, sales tax, annual corporate fee tax, all these expenses. Small businesses have to keep money in their business for it to grow. And most restaurants don't even have that much money in the first place. Their average profit margin is only 5%. So for every dollar a customer spends, 
their profit is only five cents. Compare this to law offices with an average profit margin three times this and accountants four times this. This low profit margin makes high taxes all the more devastating. I then asked Carlos if he's estimated how much the tax cut would return to his business. I haven't really calculated because, you know, with the political realm these days, they say something, but is it really going to happen? Many small business owners say, can't even think about it until it really does because it's so uncertain in the political arena right now that you kind of just are waiting, waiting to see and try not to hold your breath. Even though Carlos hasn't calculated the exact amount yet, he said it would be the difference between night and day for the growth of his business. And so I asked him how would the business spend its own money that it would be allowed to keep more of. For us, as you grow a business, you have to focus on infrastructure first. You don't just grow without focusing on infrastructure. So the first thing, if we have more uh, money coming in, is, is building, for us, it would be, for example, regional directors, uh, which are high-paying jobs, right, to take over and maybe and have corporate chefs for our restaurants. So as you grow, those people will support our current restaurants and then develop the new restaurants as well. So those kind of positions is what we're looking for. It gives a, it's actually a better-paying job, gives more education and mentorship, so they can be the trainers to mentor the next restaurants and the next field of people that you're hiring to give those opportunities to. And it's the best way of actually fielding, growing from within, fielding your people, training them and developing them and giving them the opportunity to succeed. And that's what's great. That's what's the most successful part of our business. I think the, the thing that we enjoy the most is seeing someone start maybe as a server or a busboy, server, trainer, manager, GM, and now from a GM maybe to a regional director or director of operations, and you see that growth, they actually believe that the American dream is possible. They've seen that hard work pays off. It's very frustrating. I've heard from a lot of employees and from a lot of people that are in different um, small businesses that many of their employees feel that they're stagnant, that their small business can't grow, therefore they don't get the opportunities, right? Because they don't they not have access to the capital to grow their business, but they view the business they work at as their own business, as their opportunity to grow and make more money. And so the, that spirit from those employees, which are great, employees are your number one asset to have, you have to keep nurturing that and you got to keep growing that. And opportunities, when people see that in your culture and your organization, they want to be the next one. And it, it's very frustrating for business owners when you can't always provide that. This tax cut would help him provide more of those opportunities for those who need it the most and deserve it. A cook that came to our organization from another restaurant and helped us open up a restaurant when he came first in and his passion, desire, you could tell he was a go-getter. Leading the kitchen, kind of keeping the shift and the food hot at the right timing, he developed into eventually assistant manager and then now he's running our highest grocery store as a GM and he'll probably be promoted in the future as our regional manager. So seeing that has been amazing. This team member went from making $8 an hour to $75,000 a year. We could use more of that in this country. And great job as always, Alex. And, and this is an important 
segment for us. We love to do these things. And again, uh, go to Job Creators Network. Uh, join if you're a small business owner. Uh, they defend your interests and they defend what you're all about and want to protect you and help you grow your businesses. And go to defendmainstreet.org to learn more. And this is our Voices of Main Street project. We love doing it. And our Hillsdale interns will be out and about for the next uh, few months doing this all around the Midwest, uh, the Southeast. And we'll bring you those stories of small business owners, some struggling, some waiting. And you heard it right there from our latest. And Carlos Gazetua, the owner of Sergio, is a small chain of Cuban restaurants in South Florida. Boy, he's just waiting for some relief. 50%, he said, when you add it all up. And again, he was talking about those things like prepaying your quarterly taxes. Again, if you don't own a business, you don't know what that's like and how much you got to put there. And it has nothing to do with what you earn this year. They do it on what you earned last year. So if you're having a slower year this year, you got to pay based on last year's taxes. It's crazy. And so we're fighting for the little guy. We're fighting for Main Street here on Our American Stories because, well, small business owners are the lifeblood of this great country. <laughs> 